Finally, I met with Dr. Tracy Batchelor, who began by commenting on one of the newest approaches to anti-angiogenic therapy for primary CNS tumors, the use of the potent oral VEGF TKI, Sidirinib. So Sidirinib is not yet an approved drug for any kind of cancer at this point. It is under study in a number of solid tumors. We have investigated sidirinib in recurrent glioblastoma. So again, the patients who have failed prior surgery, radiation, timazolamide, the tumor is regrowing, and we conducted a phase two trial of sidirinib alone in this patient population. And I should say that sidirinib is an oral drug. It is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, which blocks all three VEGF receptors. It's a very potent inhibitor of VEGF receptors. If you look at preclinical studies, it's 50 to 100 times more potent than sunitinib or serafinib, at least at the VEGF receptors. In any event, we ran a phase two trial of this agent alone in recurrent glioblastoma. And we demonstrated that, like bevacizumab, the drug is associated with an impressive proportion of radiographic responses, about 30 to 50 percent, depending on how you measure it. And there was improvement in progression, free survival, and overall survival, again, compared to historical controls. Based on that information, we conducted an industry-sponsored phase three trial So a randomized trial now in recurrent glioblastoma patients. There were three arms in this study. One arm was a sidirinib monotherapy arm, just like I described for the phase two trial that we conducted. There was also a control arm, which consisted of oral lomustine. Lomustine is a nitrosourea. Some would consider that a standard agent for recurrent glioblastoma. And then there was a third arm, a combination arm, where we combined sidirinib and lomustine together, and our primary endpoint was median progression-free survival. So we enrolled 325 patients and completed that study at the end of 2009, and the results are pending at this point. Any thoughts in terms of the mechanism of action of the agent, and particularly whether it works on the stroma more than the tumor? Does it work on both? And how much might be sort of an anti-edema effect? So the target is felt to be tumor stroma, VEGF being expressed on the endothelium of virtually 100% of glioblastoma specimens. The mechanism of action is one of debate. There are three possible mechanisms of action that come to mind. One would be what you mentioned, which is that at one end of the spectrum, it could be that What we are seeing with agents like sidirinib and bevacizumab is a very potent anti-edema effect. We know that these drugs will temporarily normalize the tumor vessels and cause their permeability to drop so they become less leaky, and therefore the edema improves or goes away. And that can have clinical benefits, and that might improve survival slightly. So that's one end of the spectrum, is that perhaps the mechanism of action of these drugs is a vascular normalization and improving cerebral edema. The other possibility, however, is that it is having a direct vascular disruptive effect, that you're actually causing damage to the endothelium, the tumor endothelium, and depriving the tumor of vasculature and resulting in cell death that way. 
A third interesting possibility, which has been shown in some preclinical models, is that these agents may disrupt this interesting perivascular niche that exists with glioblastoma stem cells. At least in models, it's been shown that glioblastoma stem cells are dependent on a close relationship to surrounding vasculature. And with an anti-VEGF drug like sedirinib or bevacizumab, you can disrupt that relationship and therefore kill the glioblastoma stem cell. At least in preclinical models, it appears that that's the case. So there are a number of different possible mechanisms of action for these drugs, and we're still trying to sort these out. And I guess we probably don't really know in terms of cross-resistance between sedirinib and bevacizumab. Have there been patients who've been treated with one after the other? There have been some preliminary small studies that have looked at the use of bevacizumab after patients have failed oral tyrosine kinase inhibitors, sedirinib, for example, or serafinib, or sunitinib. And in that setting, the response rate to bevacizumab clearly is much lower than it is if these patients had not been exposed to a prior anti-VEGF drug. So a subset of patients may have temporary responses, but the outcomes are still quite poor when you use bevacizumab in that setting. There's been less study of using a tyrosine kinase inhibitor after the bevacizumab antibody. So I think that's still a bit of an open question, but one might predict it would be the same sort of story, that you'll get much less activity of a tyrosine kinase inhibitor in that setting than you would of an anti-VEGF naive tumor. What about safety and tolerability? So let's start with bevacizumab. Bevacizumab in the glioblastoma patient is very reasonably tolerated. There appears to be a low frequency, fortunately, of severe side effects such as wound infection, potentially venous thrombosis, and potentially hemorrhage. But those, fortunately, are low-frequency events in the glioblastoma population. For the oral tyrosine kinase inhibitors like sedirinib and serafinib, there is a higher frequency of manageable effects such as hypertension, diarrhea, and fatigue. And these patients certainly do experience one or more of those to some degree, and it does require some proactive management to mitigate those side effects. You know, we see obviously TKIs being used in all kinds of tumors, renal cell cancer, breast cancer, and of course, it depends which TKI and which target, but a lot of oncologists talked about the difficulty in using these agents. Do you think sidereinib fits into that category? Is it more BEV-like and not that difficult from a quality of life point of view? I think that this side effect profile is similar to other TKIs. I think there's not as much use yet with sidereinib on a large scale. As I mentioned, it's not yet approved for a cancer indication. So we'll have to get some more experience with it. We're, of course, we'll have our randomized study where we'll be able to look at toxicity in that trial as well. But my sense is that it's more in line with the oral TKI side effect profile. What about predictors of response to sidereinib? There's been a lot of work with bevacizumab and other tumors trying to predict response. Anything promising that's been looked at or might be looked at for the TKIs like sidereinib? So that's a very important question. Roughly 50% or slightly more of patients will not respond to sedirinib or bevacizumab. And 
question has been, can we prospectively determine who will and who will not respond? We don't have perfect markers yet. But there are some interesting leads, I think. First, with bevacizumab, there was a study published in the JCO looking at FLT PET scans in these patients. It was a relatively small study of around 20 patients with recurrent malignant glioma who received bevacizumab. And what the investigator showed was that if a patient had a metabolic response on the FLT PET scan, they were much more likely to have a good progression-free survival and overall survival than if they didn't. And it was known relatively early in the study, within the first few weeks, whether there was a metabolic response or not. The proviso there is that it's one study and a small study, and so it needs to be replicated with sidirinib, we are interested in a number of different MRI techniques, and we've looked at permeability, leakiness of blood vessels as a marker. And this speaks to the normalizing effect, the vascular normalizing effect of sidirinib, which is to say that in many patients who receive the drug, if you do an MRI just before they receive the drug and a day later, you'll see that those patients who have the best responses and the best outcomes are those who have a drop in permeability, even after a single dose. So this, again, is a small single study and needs to be replicated, and we're attempting to do that. But there are some hints that there might be some imaging markers of response and predicting outcome with this class of agents. What about the combination of sidirinib and bevacizumab? So it's not been specifically examined in glioblastoma, I think there has been concern about the fact that there are overlapping toxicities with these two agents, and putting both of them together may produce a very significant toxicity profile. So I think that's been the concern moving forward with such a combination study, but it remains to be seen whether that combination is more effective than one or the other. Another emerging agent that's being studied and not yet available is selingitide. Can you explain what that is and what we know about it? So selingitide is a peptide molecule that actually has effects on the integrin signaling system. And so it's known as an anti-integrin, and it inhibits integrin activity. And the integrins are potentially important for maintaining the vasculature of tumors, and potentially also important in the infiltration or invasive nature of tumors. So they present an attractive target. There have been a small number of phase one and phase two trials of selingitide in glioblastoma indicating some activity, although not to the extent that you see with the anti-VEGF agents, but some activity nevertheless. Consequently, the agent has been moved forward into an international multi-center trial, randomized trial, in which selingitide is being combined with radiation and temozolomide in newly diagnosed glioblastoma versus a control arm with just radiation and temozolomide. That's an ongoing study and will answer the question, you know, whether the agent is active. They have made the decision also in that trial to focus on the MGMT-methylated glioblastoma population. So in order to qualify the trial, the glioblastoma must be MGMT-methylated. It must have the MGMT inactivated. What about method administration and side effects and toxicity? So selingitide is an intravenous medication. 
It is in the typical schedule used in glioblastoma trials. It's given typically twice weekly, and that schedule continues throughout treatment. It seems to have a very low frequency of side effects, either non-severe or severe, so it seems to be very well tolerated. Let's talk about your cases, your 54-year-old man. Right. So this was a gentleman who was referred to my practice after presenting to a local emergency ward after having his first generalized seizure. And this is not an uncommon story for this type of disease that we're going to talk about. In the emergency room, he had a CAT scan which showed a mass in his left occipital region. And he was subsequently placed on corticosteroids, anticonvulsant medications, and discharged with a follow-up scheduled with me. And when I saw him, he had also had an MRI, and he had a very heterogeneously enhancing mass in the left parietal occipital region. He, on the other hand, had fully recovered from his seizure and looked really good. He had a perfect performance status, had a normal neurological examination, So he was eager for an aggressive treatment program, and that's what we ultimately prescribed for him. So what were the options that you thought through at that time, and what actually happened? So the first option to always think through in this situation is the type of surgery that would be indicated. And the lesion in this particular gentleman was resectable, although there was clearly going to be some risk to his right visual field since he had this in the left occipital lobe. He was inclined to accept that risk and move ahead with surgery, which he did. So he had a very good removal, I would say almost a gross total resection of a left occipital lesion, and the pathology was returned as glioblastoma. And we tested his tumor for MGMT status, and he indeed had MGMT methylation in his tumor. While you're mentioning that, how much variability is there in the performance of the test? Is it very straightforward? Where is it being done? Is it being done in community practice? In our particular situation, we do it in our own pathology department. We use a PCR-based method. We do not rely on immunohistochemistry for this particular test. Even with that said, there is some controversy about how you read these things. Does any methylation count? Because the methylation can vary from part of the tumor to all of the tumor, et cetera. The way it's reported out at our institution is that if it's methylated, we call it methylated. There are some commercial enterprises which offer this type of testing, and I would say that if one is going to use those, that one should be using a PCR-based method and not immunohistochemistry. So it's becoming available, and I think that community oncologists should be aware of it and can certainly find commercial enterprises that could perform this test. And it's certainly, in my opinion, indicated in this patient population. So at that point, he's post-op. How was he doing neurologically, and what were you thinking? So he had a mild visual field defect, partial hemianopia, which, again, we knew about as a risk going in, but otherwise had a good recovery from surgery. At this point, there's usually a recovery period from surgery, and that's anywhere from 10 days to 4 weeks, generally at our institution. And at that point, we're ready to embark on chemotherapy and radiation, which is the standard of care, which is the daily temozolomide schedule with daily radiation. What about clinical trial options at that point for him? 
So there are a growing number of clinical trials for newly diagnosed glioblastoma in this setting, and certainly we do enroll patients in this setting, but for his particular timing or whatnot, he did not enroll in a clinical trial, instead had standard temozolomide and radiation. So what was the next step? So the next step is to get through that, which is six weeks long. It's focal radiation. This is a fractionated radiations given daily, five days a week, usually for six weeks, 30 fractions, 55 to 60 gray total dose to the tumor, and about a one to two centimeter margin of the tumor is visualized by MRI. The temozolomide is daily during the radiation, even on the weekends when they're not being irradiated. And then both are stopped at the same time at six weeks, and then there's usually a break period from four to six weeks with no therapy. And then we do our first image we do our first post-treatment image out at about four to six weeks. And in this particular case, this was an interesting development. I received a page from the neuroradiologist while he was down in the magnet after he'd come out of the magnet saying, you know, your patient has tumor progression. And uh, I said, thank you very much. And he came up to the office and I, indeed, I took a look at his MRI and he had around the surgical cavity, and there had just been a surgical cavity there, he had a large amount of contrast enhancement around the edges. And indeed, it looked like it very well could be a recurrent tumor. However, we knew he was MGMT methylated, and this didn't make a lot of sense that this should be recurrent tumor this early, especially after treatment. And we also noticed that this change on the MRI was all within the radiation field. There was nothing outside of where he had received radiation. And we knew that this is a recognized phenomenon in patients, and this is called pseudoprogression. These are treatment-induced changes. So when you see a patient who has that first post-radiation MRI, if they've got a new enhancement that falls within the radiation field, there's a chance that that could be tumor progression, but there's also a good chance that that could be pseudoprogression, a side effect, if you will, of the treatment. So in his case, it was so striking that we embarked on a number of additional tests. We did a PET scan. This is an FDG-based cranial PET scan. And we thought that if this were a tumor, we'd see hypermetabolic activity. We thought it was treatment effect, it would be hypometabolic. And indeed, it was hypometabolic. It looked cold by PET scan. But again, I had not seen a case this extreme, so... We ended up taking him to biopsy because we really felt like it would change our therapy if this was uh, tumor progression. So he had a number of stereotactic biopsies of this abnormality on MRI, and the pathologist told us after it came back that this was all just vast zones of necrosis with a few occasional scattered tumor cells, but the 99% of what they saw under the microscope was treatment effect, uh, necrosis from his radiation and his chemotherapy. So the response to that is just to continue treatment, as you would otherwise. So he then went on to the monthly temozolomide treatment, which is five days every month. And interestingly, over about one year of imaging, the enhancement in that region gradually resolved and almost got back to no enhancement. So with no specific intervention but time, all of this improved. And I think that is consistent with what one sees with pseudoprogression. What's our understanding about actually what's going on when you have pseudoprogression sort of biologically? Well, there are some of these specimens that appear to have a rather robust inflammatory response. 
and that post-treatment inflammation can disrupt the blood-brain barrier. You can see contrast enhancement in that setting. There's certainly the release of a number of cytokines causing necrosis or whatnot, and that can also disrupt the blood-brain barrier. So beyond that, no one really understands the specific pathophysiology, but clearly post-treatment inflammation, necrosis can produce this change on the MRI. So what was the next step? So he did very well. He was, again, MGMT methylated, so we expected him to do better than average with glioblastoma, and in fact, he did. And then at about 24 months, almost two years from his initial diagnosis, he had another seizure. The interesting thing at this time is that the seizure was on the left side of his body, as his tumor was also on the left side. So that was a little odd. And so he had an MRI repeated, and indeed... What we observed on the MRI was that he had a new contrast-enhancing lesion on the opposite side of the brain, in the right frontal lobe, clearly outside of the radiation field. And this does not obey the rule that we have lived by in glioblastoma, which is that 90-plus percent of the time, if the tumor comes back, it comes back within one to two inches of the original site. Well, here's an example where it's coming back on the opposite side of the brain. And it turns out that there is a nice paper out of Italy showing that in the MGMT methylated group, the patients we expect to do well for a longer period of time, there is a higher risk of remote failure, failure outside of the radiation field, within the brain, but outside of the radiation field. It would be interesting to see if this is replicated, but it was a very interesting paper that demonstrated this. So I think he fits this rule where if you're MGMT methylated, number one, you do have a better survival, which he did compared to average. Number two, you're at higher risk of pseudoprogression because you have a treatment-sensitive tumor. This happened in this case. And three, you seem to be at a higher risk of having failure, a remote failure outside of the radiation field. And that happened in this case as well. We decided to radiate the right frontal lesion, which we did, but unfortunately he had a rather rapid decline and survived only about three months after this recurrence outside of the radiation field. So all told, he had a survival of almost 27 months, but ultimately died of glioblastoma. Now, when he had this lesion in the other location, did you rebiopsy? In fact, we did rebiopsy in his particular case, and just it was so unusual. And he had the glioblastoma that was still methylated. He had MGMT methylation at the site of the recurrence, But it certainly behaved more aggressively than it did the first time around. Now, I don't know exactly when this happened, but what about bevacizumab in this setting of recurrent disease? So he had a trial of bevacizumab at the end. In his particular case, he did not have a response. But bevacizumab, of course, this is the setting in which it is now available and approved, which is recurrent glioblastoma once a patient has failed prior standard of care. So it is available. It's certainly something we consider in this situation. And unfortunately, you know, some patients don't respond. And this was a patient who did not respond to bevacizumab. So in this situation, do you use or did you use the bevacizumab with the radiation? And also, did you use chemo with it? We used chemo with the radiation. But after finishing that, the tumor had actually progressed yet in another zone outside of a radiation field. And at that point, he went on to bevacizumab alone and had stable disease for a few weeks, but then eventually succumbed. But you don't start it during the radiation therapy? 
No, at this time, again, so this is an unusual case where we're giving another round of radiation. Most of these patients will not qualify for another round of radiation, and in that situation, you're giving bevacizumab on its own. Bevacizumab, as I mentioned earlier, is being combined with radiation timazolamide in two phase three trials, but it's not something right now that we offer outside of a clinical trial. That is to say, combining bevacizumab with radiation. And when you talk about chemo with bevacizumab, was that arena-tecan, or what agents do you use? In this particular case, we used just bevacizumab, but arena-tecan in the randomized trial, which led to approval of bevacizumab, one of the arms was bevacizumab and arena-tecan. You know, anecdotally, it's been combined with other chemotherapy agents, but none of these have been systematically studied. How about your 50-year-old man with GBM? So this was another interesting fellow who presented with a right temporal mass after presenting with headaches, not seizure, but with headaches. And this was in his non-dominant temporal lobe, which lends itself to a very aggressive surgical approach. So he had a really an anterior temporal lobectomy and a gross total resection of the tumor. And this, again, was an MGMT-methylated tumor. He went on to receive temozolomide and radiation and had a rather remarkable outcome of five years. No progression by MRI, excellent quality of life, working full-time. So it's possible in some patients, uh, and it's really gratifying when you do see it, although it unfortunately is a minority of our patients. But he did well for five years, but regrettably developed local recurrence at the site, several nodules of enhancement, asymptomatic on an MRI. Given how unusual this had behaved, we elected to go back to surgery, and he did have a partial removal of the recurrence, which was proven to be glioblastoma. And in this particular case, this patient elected to go on trial, a clinical trial, a phase two clinical trial of an oral VEGF receptor TKI, which he started and experienced improvement radiographically by MRI. The contrast enhancement was reduced. He clinically was quite well before starting, so really no clinical improvement, but radiographically improved. He did have some issues with rash, developed an interesting, flaky, painful rash in the palms and soles of his feet, which you see with this class of agents, these oral TKIs from time to time. We decided to manage this by giving him a drug holiday off the drug for 14 days. He came off, the rash went away. We restarted him at a lower dose on the clinical trial, and he still got it to some extent, but a very minor extent after that, and has done very well and at this point is a year out, still on therapy with this oral VEGF TKI. Now, you say VEGF TKI, this wasn't sidirinib? This was not, in this particular case, this was not sidirinib. This was another agent. So there are, what, a bunch of agents like that out there? There are a number of agents. I'd say just in our program, we have three oral TKIs that are under study for recurrent glioblastoma. Now, you mentioned the rash and the foot problem. What about his blood pressure? Has had not. We follow the blood pressure, especially on these trials, very carefully. The patients are given a home monitoring device. They keep a diary at home. Of course, we see them frequently measured in the clinic, and he has not had, to date, an elevation in his blood pressure. How often do you see this recurrent disease so late? 
Well, I think if you're in the business long enough and you have enough patients who've made it out several years, unfortunately, most of the patients will recur. I think the longest single patient I have is probably seven years without recurrence, but I have had several that have made it out four years, five years, six years, and then recurred. If they make it out that far, while that's a great thing, unfortunately, most of the time, the glioblastoma still recurs. How about your 37-year-old man? So this was a 37-year-old who initially had an anaplastic astrocytoma, so a grade 3 astrocytoma that was treated in France initially with a resection. It was a left frontal tumor. It was partially removed. He had involved field radiation, and he had a nitrosurea given with the radiation in France. And then did very well for seven years, had no evidence of recurrence from his anaplastic astrocytoma, but then came in complaining of headaches. We did an MRI, and he had a lot of enhancement at the site of the tumor, and he went on to have surgery for the subtotal removal of the enhancement, and unfortunately, this revealed that he now had progression to grade four astrocytoma, which is glioblastoma. Since it had been seven years since his prior treatment, the radiation oncologist decided to give him a lower total dose, but to give him a fractionated course of re-irradiation, which he had done. He then went on to receive temozolomide after radiation and did well for about a year and then developed, unfortunately, another recurrence that involved a region of the brain outside the radiation field. So we did not rebiopsy this. We were confident this was yet another recurrence of his tumor. So at this point, he was treated with bevacizumab and arena-tecan, and he had an excellent radiographic response. His tumor regressed by more than 50%. The contrast-enhancing part of the tumor regressed by more than 50%. We were able to reduce his steroid dosage because his edema was under better control, And he actually had clinical improvement. His language, his dysphasia improved. It didn't clear up, but it definitely improved. So he went on to this therapy and had been on it a few months. And unfortunately, he developed at the site of his prior two surgeries a wound dehiscence and was seen by our plastic surgery colleagues and neurosurgical colleagues and he had to undergo, eventually, a removal of his bone. There was an infection there, and he had to come off bevacizumab and chemotherapy and actually did very well coming off the medication. The bevacizumab had no regrowth of the tumor and eventually had a flat reconstruction, had a rebuild of his skull and his skin over the scalp there. He had a graft put there. And we have kept him off bevacizumab, not intending to use it again until we absolutely must in this setting of wound dehiscence infection and flap reconstruction. So I think that the interesting thing about this case is that it highlights the fortunately uncommon to rare but serious complication of wound dehiscence with anti-VEGF agents. And these have been recognized not only with bevacizumab but with the oral TKIs as well. So rare complication, but a serious one. Now, at the time that he had the dehiscence, how long had it been since he had surgery? It had roughly been about a year since he had had surgery. It really seems strange. I mean, do you ever see that without bevacizumab on board? 
rarely, but in our practice, and we have a very large practice, it is true that if you see this complication, it seems to occur earlier after surgery. But we have three or four patients now who are six months or later after the surgery develop this complication. Interesting. You know, I think it was actually out of your institution, there was a report in breast cancer with bevacizumab and breast reconstruction with, you know, I guess breaking down, I don't know if you call it dehiscence. Yet it seems like, you know, with people kind of separating surgery by six or eight weeks and colon cancer and a lot of these other cancers, you don't hear too much about that. It's kind of hard to really get a fix. I guess globally, would you say it's kind of a rare problem? Oh, I mentioned that it's a rare complication. And what has been reported now in fairly sizable phase two studies in patients with newly diagnosed glioblastoma, where all of these patients, for the most part, are having surgery, craniotomies, that the incidence of this complication appears to be very low. I do think, though, it's worth mentioning, and I do think that, especially in this setting where the window from surgery is short, is on the order of weeks or months, that one should at least pay attention to the wound when you're about to start an anti-VEGF therapy. And if there's any question about it, having a colleague, a surgical colleague, take a look at the wound. I think we're being more careful now in this setting, and hopefully this will remain a rare problem. What about bevacizumab and brain mets? There was initially some concern about the possibility of hemorrhage and risk of using bevacizumab really systemically, and that seems like in various cancers, lung cancer, et cetera, the concern's a lot less do you have concerns about it? And what about actually using BEV as part of treatment for brain mets? Well, in some of the first reports of bevacizumab in glioblastoma, there were a small number of patients who experienced intratumoral hemorrhages. So there was concern initially that maybe we're increasing the risk of bleeding in these tumors. Well, it turns out with larger and longer experiences that the risk of hemorrhage appears to be low, not zero, but appears to be low in glioblastoma. Also, at last year's ASCO, there was an abstract presented looking at the incidence of brain hemorrhage in patients who had brain metastases and had received bevacizumab, and the incidence was low. It was less than 5% is my recollection. And remember that there is a finite risk of spontaneous hemorrhage into glioblastoma and brain metastases, especially brain metastases from melanoma, thyroid carcinoma. So it's a low risk in this patient population. In terms of the efficacy or the benefit in brain metastases, it remains to be proven. There are a number of phase two trials that I'm aware of, both with sidirinib as well as with bevacizumab, in patients who have brain metastases from various solid tumors, but nothing really to guide us in practice at this point. 